Be seated. Numbers chapter 34 this evening. Sunday nights. Genesis to Revelation. Now remember the children of Israel are camped on the eastern side of the Jordan River and they're just about ready, uh, really just uh, slightly over a month away or so from entering into the promised land. And uh, the group that Moses is dealing with at this particular uh, point in time, you'll hear me repeat this many times throughout the, the book of Deuteronomy, but he's not talking to the first generation of, of the children of Israel that came out of uh, Egypt. They have now died off. And so what he's speaking to a, a group of people now that are the second generation, and uh, in some ways he's repeating certain things, giving them new information, uh, because uh, they've, uh, they were just whippersnappers when they, uh, the oldest of them uh, heard these things the first time or were exposed to them. And uh, so he's, uh, he's refreshing their memory. And for those that haven't heard, uh, they're hearing it for the first time. And in chapter 34, it's an interesting chapter. For those of you who read a, a little bit ahead of time uh, this afternoon or whenever, you look at it and say, wow, okay, why even bother reading through that? In, in the chapter, because th- it's the Bible. Okay, that's the short answer. All right, but we never do the short answer around here. So here's the longer answer that's uh, on top of that. It, in chapter 34, uh, God gives the children of Israel the boundaries of the land that they're going in to possess now, uh, it, it, the, the promised land. So he gives them the northern boundary, the southern boundary, the eastern boundary, and uh, the western boundary. And he's just given them a little, it's a little sliver of land, it's not a big piece of land. Hard to believe, you go to Israel and you can drive it up and down, it takes less time than to drive down to L.A. It's, it's, it's smaller than our state of New Jersey. But you don't have to have a, a lot of land when it's well located. And the nation of Israel is very well located. It connects three of the great continents of the world together. And the traffic of the ancient world, the center of the ancient world was not the United States of America. The center of the ancient world was Asia, Africa, and Europe. And they connected those three continents together. Virtually everything that happened went through their land. So if you're going to give a group of people, your people, a small piece of land in order for them to be an influence for you in the whole world, and you know they're going to probably be a relatively small group of people in terms of the population of the whole world, you couldn't give them a better piece of land. Not just is it a prosperous piece of land and flowing with milk and honey and and able to to raise great herds and, and, and crops and all these things, but its location is very, very strategic. And the strategicness of the location is uh, even, you know, well known to us today. It's the whole eyes of the whole world are on on Israel. And uh, who's going to threaten Israel? Is Israel going to stop Iran before uh, Adminijab makes his threat that he's going to launch missiles and wipe them out and his uh, version of a holy war and all? So it's, it, all that stuff's even going on today. But one of the things that uh, the Lord was doing in giving them kind of these set, God-determined borders is God knew he was going to bless them. They're going to go in that land. He wasn't kidding when he said, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to prosper there. You're not just going to get by, you know, from week to week and, and wonder what's going to happen. This, this land will give you, uh, it'll give you crops and it'll allow you to raise herds. It'll be more than you can eat as a people. You're going to prosper there. And one of the, and one of the hardest things for God's people, any people, but God's people, 
to handle is prosperity. Because we, we can have a tendency to get a little more time on our hands and, and some options that, that we might not otherwise have, and then we can start to get ourselves into trouble. And so he's telling them, you're going to prosper there, you're going to become wealthy there, and then what does uh, the history of man teach us? That when nations prosper materially, they start to look to their neighbors. Well, what do they got over there that we can have? And, and so they become strong, they become powerful, they develop a military, they develop an expansionist mentality, and pretty soon they're taking over all the countries around them. And God does not want, did not want in his, God's, in his people then, not in his people now, to have this expansionist mentality and, and, and kind of military mentality related to the rest of the world, that they exist for us to conquer and for us to get everything that we can from them. And so he says, these are your boundaries. And so I'm going to give you these boundaries. You'll have enough on your hands to go ahead and possess all of that land. And I don't want you to go any further than that. And you look at the nation of Israel even today. How many of those nations that surround them could they whoop? You pick up Modesto B tomorrow morning and they've invaded. You name the nations they could invade strip them of all of their wealth, expand their territory, time 10 in 48 hours. They could do it. They have the power to do it militarily there. And yet, to Israel's credit to this day, they're not an expansionist people. They just want their piece of land, the land that God has given them within those borders, and they'll be happy with that. Now, David had to fight against the nations that were around him because they attacked him to take from the children of Israel what God had given them. And the nation of Israel has to fight in order to protect what has been given to them by God even to this day. But, but again, to Israel's credit, they are following what God has said in his word. This is your land. There'll be enough in that land for you. So we pick it up there. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land of Canaan, this is the land that shall fall to you as an inheritance. The land of Canaan uh, to its boundaries. First three words of verse 3, Your southern border, so he defines now their southern border, shall be along the wilderness of Zin, along the border of Edom, and then your southern border shall extend eastward to the end of the Salt Sea, speaking of the Dead Sea. Your border shall turn from the southern side of the ascent of uh, Akrabim, uh, continue to Zin, and be on the south of Kadesh Barnea. Then you, it shall go on to Hazar Adar and continue to Asmon. The border shall turn from Asmon to the brook of Egypt, and it shall be uh, shall end at the sea. Speaking of the Mediterranean Sea. Now the description here on this, there'll be no test, but the description that he he gives here um, is basically defines what Israel's border is to this day, their southern border. It's, it's, it's a little different than what they possess today, um, but the description that's given here for their southern border would also include the Gaza Strip. That would not be in anybody else's hands. That's a part of, a, of, of the portion of, of the Promised Land that was given to the Jews. As for the western border, verse um, 
6. You shall have the great sea for a border. This shall be your western border. Well, that's an easy border, isn't it? It's called the Mediterranean Sea. So that defines that border. How much to fight over there? And this shall be your northern border. From the great sea, you shall mark out, the great sea being the Mediterranean, you shall mark out your borderline to Mount Hor. From Mount Hor, you shall mark out your border to the entrance of Hamath. And then the, end, the direction of the border shall be toward Zedad, and the border shall proceed to Ziphron, and it shall end at Hazar, Enon. This shall be your northern border. And what is being described here is uh, pretty close to what their current border is, except that the border that's described here in Numbers chapter 34 would include uh, what uh, the southern section of what is known today as Lebanon. So do you see it read in the news a lot of the uh, kind of uh, uh, you know diplomacy that's going on and sometimes something less cordial than diplomacy going on over trying to force Israel to give uh, back to Syria the Golan Heights which is up in the north well what's described here includes the Golan Heights and even more includes much of southern uh, Lebanon and then their eastern border you shall mark out verse 10 your eastern border from Hazar Enon to Shepham, the border shall go down from Shepham to Riblah on the east side of Ain. The border shall go down and reach to the uh, eastern side of the Sea of Chinnereth, which is the Sea of Galilee. The border shall go down along the Jordan, the Jordan River, which separates Israel from Jordan uh, today. The border go right along that Jordan River, and it shall end at the Salt Sea, that is the Dead Sea, and this shall be your land with its surrounding uh, boundaries. And so their uh, eastern border is very much what, uh, given to them is very much what constitutes their eastern border uh, today. And so what is, what is called uh, by some of the surrounding countries called the uh, occupied territory, they don't acknowledge that land that, that Israel gained in, uh, uh, in the previous wars uh, when they were attacked. And, uh, but when you come back to the Bible, that land, everything to the west of the Jordan River is, is given to uh, God. And um, he ends up having the final say on just about everything. So uh, don't bet um, your lunch money uh, against uh, Israel possessing that land. And so that was to be their eastern uh, border. And then he said, then the Lord commanded the children of Israel saying, this is the land which you shall inherit by lot which the Lord has commanded to give to the nine and a half tribes, uh, nine tribes and the half tribe for the tribe of the children of Reuben according to the house of their fathers, the tribe of the children of Gad according to the house of their fathers have received their inheritance and the half tribe of Manasseh has received its inheritance. The two tribes and the half tribe shall have received their inheritance on this side, that is the eastern side of the Jordan where they were camped across from Jericho eastward toward the sunrise. So God was saying, all right, these two and a half tribes that we talked about last week, uh, they wanted the land on the east side, so they've given it. That's what they wanted in terms of their allotment in the land. So this land, the land of Canaan, it's to be divided between the remaining nine and a half tribes. And then the Lord spoke to Moses and identifying the men who were to be responsible 
for um, the allocation of the promised land to the different tribes and to the different clans within those tribes once they did possess uh, the promised land. And so this was their responsibility. It's one thing for God to say something. Now there need to be leaders that will then enact that. And so he takes care of all the details. These are the names of the men who shall divide the land among you as an inheritance. Uh, Eleazar the priest, Joshua the son of Nun, and you shall take one leader of every tribe to divide the land for the inheritance. And these are the names of the men from the tribe of Judah. Uh, Caleb was the man that was chosen from the tribe of the children of Simeon. Uh, uh, Shemuel from the tribe of Benjamin. Eladad uh, from the tribe, uh, let's see, from the tribe of Benjamin. And then a leader from the tribe of the children of Dan, Buki. Don't ever complain about your name. You little bookie you. What do you do? Come here, bookie. Let me get your cheek there, bookie. You little bookie. Okay, well, okay, verse 23. From the sons of Joseph, a leader from the tribe of the children of Manasseh, uh, Haniel, and then a leader from the tribe of the children of Ephraim, uh, Kemuel, a leader from the tribe of the children of Zebulun, uh, Elizaphan, a leader from the tribe of the children of Issachar, uh, Paltiel, and then a leader from the tribe of the children of Asher, Ahihud, and a leader from the tribe of the children of Naphtali, uh, Pedahel. And these are the ones the Lord commanded to divide the inheritance among the children of Israel in the land of Canaan. So they had the responsibility to make sure that God's commands were enacted. Then chapter 35, the Lord uh, speaks about uh, the, what are the 48 cities that were to be given as a possession to uh, the Levites, and then six of those cities were to be uh, cities of refuge. Now, uh, when the children of Israel, in chapter 35, they are, they are called by God now, they're going to conquer the land, all this land is going to be yours, and uh, so they were to take 48 cities, different cities spread out throughout the land, and they were to give those cities and, and the surrounding area around the cities to the tribe of Levi. Now remember the Levites, you never see them in any of these lists where the land's going to be allotted to them because their whole responsibility, the Bible says, God said to them, I'm your inheritance. God was their inheritance. Their whole focus, morning, noon, and night, all their strength, all their everything was to be uh, a spiritual influence in the nation of Israel. They led the, the worship services, all of the sacrifices, the maintenance and the oversight of the services at the, at the tabernacle and later at the temple. So their focus was to be spiritual. God said, in essence, God was saying, I don't want you to have a big piece of land to conquer. And then I don't want you to keep protecting that land and I don't want you to be raising crops there and doing all these kinds of things. I want you to be focused completely on the spiritual welfare of this nation. And God knows us. He knows that there's that ability to say, well, God has called me to do this and he's called me to be a spiritual influence, you know, for him and all. And then over a period of time, wow, I'm more interested in the crops that are coming in and how big is the herd rather than in, in the health of, of the, the spiritual health health of the nation itself. And so he said, I'm not going to give you that di distraction. But he did want them to have some land. It would seem that even from the very beginning that the tribe of Levi, they didn't all. It was a very large tribe. You're talking about thousands and thousands of men. To say nothing of their wives and their children. 
You didn't need to have all of them at the tabernacle and later all of them in Jerusalem all at once. There wasn't that much work to do uh, related to the sacrifices. There's a lot of work and it was very physical work. But what they ended up doing was devising kind of a means of, of shifts. So one month the Levites from this section or this particular city in, or, or two or three cities or whatever from uh, Israel, they would come for a month and they would minister these things. And then the next month they would go home and then the Levites from these cities, they would come and you'd have this rotation going on. It's interesting that God takes the, the Levites and he doesn't, uh, again, take one big gigantic city in the middle of Israel and plunk them all there in one place. He spreads them out evenly throughout all of the land, evenly throughout the tribes, tribes that had more land or the tribes that had uh, more people. They gave uh, more cities than the smaller tribes numerically and with the land. So everything was fair, but uh, they would then give these cities so that the Levites were spread evenly throughout the whole land. And the idea was that they would then bring their godly influence into all of these different tribes and into all of the different areas of, of the nation of, of Israel. So it, God didn't want all of that holiness and all of that exhortation to godliness and all to be concentrated just in one place. He wanted it to be spread throughout uh, all of, of the nation. And so they went throughout all the tribes. These were the teachers of the Word of God. They'd also be teaching the Word in, in, in these cities throughout the land, in addition to their service at the tabernacle and later at, at the temple. So this is the cities that were be, to be given to them. The Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, saying, Command the children of Israel that they give the Levites cities to dwell in from the inheritance of their possession. So these cities are supposed to come out of your possession, you, you other uh, twelve tribes. And you shall also give the Levites, in addition to the cities, number two, common land around the cities. And they shall have the cities to dwell in. So God wanted them to, they're serving the Lord, but God wanted them to have cities for, uh, to have homes, to raise their families in, and all these practical kind of things that they needed in addition to serving the Lord the way that they were serving the Lord. And so they needed to have a place to live, to dwell in. And their common land, this land that would be immediately around the city, was for their cattle and for their herds and for all of their animals. And so God said, all right, these cities are going to be given to you, 48 of them, and you have the city that will be handed over to you. And then there was to be this common land immediately outside of the city. We'll get to the dimensions of it in a moment. And it was enough land for them to raise herds. God wanted them to be able to raise goats and to raise sheep and to raise cattle uh, for their own sustenance. And even though they were, they, their, uh, their provisions for me- food and that kind of thing were provided mostly by the offerings that people brought uh, to, to the, the tabernacle and to the temple. So he wanted to have a little bit of land. Not so much land that they could sustain themselves on it and to be tempted to be drawn away from their service to the Lord, but enough to give them a taste of ordinary life, 
to give them a taste of being able to determine, you know, what they would have, what they would eat, and, and not be completely at the mercy of the obedience of God's people in terms of bringing their sacrifices. So it was just a beautiful combination of, of giving them a city, giving them just the right amount of land. And the common land, verse 4, of the cities which you will give the Levites shall extend from the wall of the city outward a thousand cubits all around. And so they were going to measure... Uh, 1,500 feet in all directions, square around the city. That was their pasture land for their animals. And you shall measure outside the city. On the east side, 2,000 cubits. On the south side, 2,000 cubits. On the west side, 2,000 cubits. And on the north side, 2,000 cubits. And uh, this shall be, the city shall be in the middle. This shall belong to them as common land. For the city. So they get 48 cities. It's God's doing. This is the reason behind it. Now, among the cities which you shall give the Levites, that 48, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, to which, here's the purpose for them, to which a manslayer may flee. And to these you shall add 42 cities. So 48 cities altogether, six of them cities of refuge. And so all the cities you will give to the Levites shall be 48. These you shall give with their common uh, land. And so uh, the total number. And the cities which you will give shall be from the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe you shall give many. From the smaller tribe you shall give a few. He didn't want like the larger tribe with more people outvoting the smaller tribe and saying, yeah, in the land of Simeon, let's put about 38 of those cities. You know, gobble up all their land. God knows us, I'm telling you. He knows us. So it was to be spread out, done fairly, each shall give some of his, its cities to the Levites in proportion to the inheritance that each one receives. And then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When you cross uh, the Jordan uh, into the land of Canaan, then you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you. Here's the reason. That the manslayer who kills any person accidentally may flee there. And they shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger that the manslayer may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. And so the cities of refuge, the refuge, the uh, purpose of it was a place where if a person accidentally killed another person, accidental death, uh, he could uh, run to that city. Once he entered into the city, he was safe from the avenger of blood. Now, what the avenger of blood was in, in that ancient day was also known as a kinsman redeemer. In, in Israel at that time, they did not have the whole kind of legal structure that we have. They didn't have uh, courtrooms and... and uh, um, uh, uh, jails and prisons. They didn't have uh, a national guard. They didn't have local police force. They didn't. We have a very, very developed justice system in the United States of America, and so does much of, of, of the rest of the world. Well, they didn't have that that kind of thing in uh, in those days uh, in order to you know enforce law. So 
if a crime was committed against your family, then what would happen is the oldest male blood relative was responsible to exact revenge for the family. And that person was known as the uh, kinsman redeemer or here as the avenger. So in those days, you didn't just sin against an individual. You sinned against an entire family. And in the case of the murder of a family member, they would hunt you down, hunt down the guilty, and then they would exact their own justice for that murder by, by killing the person. So in, this, in a world without the established, recognized judicial system, this served as a, a necessary deterrent to crime. Everyone knew that if you do wrong to someone, you're not getting away with it. Because that family will die, every male in that family to the last male will die in avenging the wrong that has been done to them. So it made you real hesitant to pick a, 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 a fight with the McCoys or the Hatfields. And uh, you just didn't want to mess with that. And, and so it was a, a very, very good deterrent in, in those days. And if a person accidentally killed somebody, then they could run to one of these cities of refuge and they would be safe there as for enough time for the judges in Israel, the religious judges that were in those cities, they would then listen to the case, determine whether it was accidental or whether it was premeditated murder. And if it was accidental, they would determine it accidental and then this man would find safety in the city uh, of, of refuge. Now, the problem with the system of, of this kind of revenge killing as it operated in the ancient world was it had a weakness, and the weakness that it had was that the avenger of blood could be so, become so angry over the death of his wife or over the death of his parents or one of his children or one of his relatives that he would not then take the time to determine whether the death was accidental or whether it was murder. He would just find the guy and kill him. And, and the danger of that happening is, number one, it would be the, the shedding of innocent blood. But the other thing that it would introduce into the nation of Israel is, now you have killed my family member for an accident, so now you've got the kinsman redeemer on this family who's going to be compelled now to bring justice on you. And you can see that it doesn't take very much before you're going to have the nation of Israel very divided over these blood feuds. And so God says, I don't want that. I see that happening in the nations all around you. Here's how we will we'll handle that. God's into law and order. He's into justice. And uh, he wants the murder to be dealt with. And he wants the person that has accidentally killed someone uh, to be protected. So he addresses the, the weakness of the current system and he wants there to be that differentiation between accidental death and, uh, and murder. And again, remembering that Israel did not have a standing army at the time. They did not have a formal police uh, force. They didn't have people patrolling the streets and doing all of these kinds of things. And so here is a law that allowed situations that needed to come before the elders in judgment to come uh, to them. And so this is the 
the reason behind uh, all of it. And the Lord, verse, uh, verse 13, And of the cities which you shall give, you shall have six cities of refuge. You shall appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, where they were camped, on the east, and three cities which you shall appoint in the land of Canaan, which shall be cities of refuge. And so there were going to be six cities, three on one side of the Jordan River, three on the other side of the Jordan River. Joshua later on will read in the book of Joshua the names of those particular cities. The interesting thing is that they were spread out. These six cities that you were to run to, um, they were spread out equally over the land so no one was more than a one day's run from getting to the city. So that if you're out, and it's one of the illustrations that God gives in His Word, here you've got, um, uh, you know, you're out cutting wood with Joe Bacicalupi and uh, you're knocking down some wood in the forest and you're using the axe and everything and the axe head flies off uh, of, of the axe handle, boom, right into his head. And boom, he goes down. You go over there, you look at him, you say, man, has it got, got any kind of medical attention I can give to him? Wow, he's already dead. And then you realize, okay, the avenger of blood, when they find him dead, they're going to come after me. So you got the time that it takes for them to discover the body to get a head start on the Avenger of Blood and get into that city before somebody with a hot head takes you out for murder when all of it was an accident. So they were to be spread out in, in that kind of, of a way. Do you know what verse we're on? I'm the only one that does. Verse 15, isn't it? These six cities shall be for refuge for the children of Israel, for the stranger and for the sojourner among them, that anyone who kills a person accidentally may flee there. Now, this is interesting. God says this law is not just for the Jews. This law is for the Gentile too. I, I want there to be justice for the Jew and the Gentile in my land. This is my land and I want everybody protected in this way. Now the Bible says, as, as the religious leaders came uh, to Jesus and they were confronting him in John chapter 5, and he said, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have everlasting life. But he said, these are they which testify of me. The entirety of the law and the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, it's all a picture of Jesus. And the cities of refuge are just a beautiful picture uh, of Jesus and the refuge that a sinner finds uh, in, in him. And, and so it, it, one example of it is concerning the cities of refuge. They were divinely uh, provided by God as a, a place of salvation for the innocent. Now the Bible tells us, book of Hebrews, that Jesus is better than any picture of him in the Old Testament. And you know how Jesus is better? Because he's a refuge, not only for the person who is not guilty, but he's a refuge for the person who is guilty. He not only covers and gives us a refuge related to accidental sin, but for sin that we do on purpose. How many of you would, would be at peace tonight... Uh, in your relationship with God and, and uh, have a confidence related to your future in heaven if you knew that Jesus only forgave uh, unintentional sin. Just a quick show of hands. For the purpose of the tape, 
There are no hands uh, risen. So we need a Savior that covers unintentional sin and intentional sin. I'm in a room just filled with sinners. Glad to take communion with you tonight. We'll, we should celebrate mightily. A second example of how they were a picture of, of Jesus is that this was provided for Jew and Gentile alike, this refuge, without any discrimination. Romans chapter 3, verse 29 says, Or is he... Uh, the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. He has a concern for Jew and Gentile alike. He's provided a refuge for Jew and Gentile equally and alike. Another picture of all of this related to Jesus is that these cities of refuge were accessible to all. Everyone had access to him. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, wow, 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 whosoever access for anyone believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the additional thing related to this is that all of these cities as a place of refuge, they were well known. The places of salvation were well communicated to the whole world. Everyone knew what cities to run to. They didn't have to guess where salvation might be found. And so too with Jesus, God has announced to the whole world where refuge from sin is found, where salvation is, might be found. Peter spoke in his sermon in Acts chapter 4 and he said, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Speaking of Jesus is the, is the well-known refuge uh, for the sinner the one who's guilty of sin. On and on, you could literally go on. We'd spend the whole night on how the cities of refuge were a picture uh, of, of Jesus. We might look at a point or two as we, as we uh, finish out the chapter we go through. It's a very rich picture of him. And so, this is what they were there for the Jews, also for the Gentiles. Verse 16, but if he, someone, strikes another person with an iron implement, boom, on purpose, so that he dies, that's a murder. <laughs> and the murderer shall surely be put to death. God believes in capital punishment, believes in, 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 in the old covenant there, and new covenant also. And he, if he strikes him, uh, someone strikes another person with a stone in his hand, deliberate, uh, desire to kill him, by which one could die, and he does die, he's a murderer, and the murderer shall be put to death. Or if he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon by which one could die and he does die, he's a murderer and the murderer shall be put to death. The avenger of blood himself shall, be, uh, uh, shall put the murderer to death. So if this guy flees to the city and he's, and he's a cold-blooded murderer, the judges would say, no, you're, you are guilty of murder. There's no refuge for, for murder here. And uh, he'd be turned over to the avenger of blood and the avenger of blood would then... Um, execute uh, the person. The avenger of blood himself shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. If he pushes him uh, uh, out of hatred or while lying in wait, you ambush someone or, or he hurls something at someone so that he dies or in enmity or hatred, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies. The one who struck him shall surely be put to death. He is a murderer. The avenger of blood shall put the murderer to death when he meets him. Murder is a big sin to God. We'll see a little bit later. The files 
the land, defiles a country in a way that he doesn't want a country to be defiled by it. Murder is a big deal to him. And so he wanted to be dealt with properly. He gave no refuge for, the, for deliberate, cold-blooded murder. However, if someone pushes another person, so you just shove them, you know, but you don't intend to kill them without enmity, you don't hate the guy, or, you, or someone throws anything at him without lying in wait. There isn't an intention to, to kill him. Or uses a stone by which a man could die, throwing it at him without seeing him. So you just throw a big rock out in the middle of the field and, ooh, that's not a good sound. <laughs> and you accidentally killed someone out there. But you didn't do it on purpose, so that he dies while he was not his enemy or seeking his harm. Then the congregation shall judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. And so, uh, the, uh, uh, so there was the differentiation. So the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood. So he's innocent, wasn't on purpose. He's delivered. The avenger of blood cannot take this man's life. And the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he had, he had fled, and he shall remain there until the death of the high priest who uh, was anointed with holy oil. So that was the, one of the characteristics is that if you are guilty of manslaughter or guilty of accidental death and you ended up in one of these cities of refuge, you had to stay there until the death of whoever was the high priest at that time. So if the, the new high priest was 27 years old, that's probably you're going to be in that city for the rest of your life. If he's a little bit older and, and the high priest died, then the, the people that were held in the cities of refuge, they were then released to go home and the avenger of blood could not take any action uh, against them. Beautiful picture also uh, of Jesus. Again, he is uh, our high priest and the death of our high priest has set us free from the bondage of our, our past sin. And again, Jesus is better, so he frees us from the guilt of deliberate sin as well as unintentional sin. So he's provided greatly for us in this, in this new covenant. And I think that one of the things that, by keeping these people that were even um, uh, innocent related to um, uh, you know, murder here, keeping them in the city of refuge until the time that the high priest died. It, 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 I think that one of the things that that did is it would ease the pain of the grieving family to know, well, at least the person didn't get off completely free. And the other thing that it did is it left the sentence of the person finding refuge in the city of refuge in the hands of God. And people could live with that. I can live with the fact that this man is at least paying some price for the death of my loved one. And it's up to God how long they stay and confined to that, that city of refuge. If he left the city of refuge before the death of the high priest, then, then the avenger of blood could take him out. And his, his own blood was on his own head uh, related to that. Interesting, too, to realize, at least interesting to me, um, Interesting to realize that these six cities that constituted the cities of refuge, they belong to the Levites. And so 
you would think that, wow, if you've got a city of refuge and you've got a bunch of people that have to live in this city and they, got no, they can't leave this city until the death of the high priest, wow, we've got a pool of slave labor like you can't believe. They've got no options. We can take advantage of them. But because these were cities of the Levites, godly people, a fear of God, this city would have been a place, just the perfect place for them to be and, and where there would be that, uh, that loving attention given to them and, and a compassion on the place that they found themselves in, in life, uh, not because they had deliberately uh, done something. And if the uh, manslayer at any time goes outside of the limits of the city of refuge where he fled and the avenger of blood finds him outside the limits of his city of refuge and the avenger of blood kills the manslayer, he shall not be guilty of blood because he should have remained in this, his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. And after these things shall be a statute of judgment to you throughout uh, your generations in all your dwellings. Whoever kills a person, the murderer, shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. But one witness is not sufficient testimony against uh, a person for the death penalty. And so, uh, all the way through the law of Moses, nobody could be put to death in a capital crime on the basis of just one eyewitness, one source of evidence. Is it, for those of you who are in the legal profession, you read the Old Testament, you read the law, and you realize how much our whole judicial system is based upon the Old Testament law. And, and so, here, here we will take in a court of law not only an eyewitness, but then also circumstantial evidence constitutes a witness. But you need more than just one witness to, to, to build a case that can result in, in execution. And moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. In other words, justice was to be uh, meted out uniformly. You were not to be able to circumvent justice because you were powerful or because you were wealthy. Did, that was to be taken off of the table. The issue is not power. It is not wealth. It is right. It is wrong. It is what is right in God's eyes. That's what was to be uh, done. And you shall take no ransom from, uh, for him who has fled to his city of refuge that he may return to dwell in the land before the death of the priest. He couldn't buy off and say, let me give you 5,000 shekels so that I can go home before the high priest dies. And so God doesn't want any of this kind of corruption in that and, and he knows that these kind of things can set in so he prohibits it ahead of time. And so you shall... This, the reason behind all this, so you shall not pollute the land where you are, for blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that is shed in it, except by the blood of him who shed it. Therefore, do not defile the land which you inhabit, in the midst of which I dwell, for I, the Lord, dwell among the children of Israel." Nobody wants to live in a crime-ridden city. Nobody wants to live in a neighborhood in a city where all kinds of innocent blood is being shed and nobody cares and nobody's doing anything about it. That's a terrible way to live. And God looks and says, I don't want to live in that kind of a neighborhood. This is my land. I don't want to live in a land where people are just killing each other and going on about their business like it was nothing. So God doesn't want to live in that kind of a neighborhood or that kind of a country either. So he says, this, I, I live here. You don't just live here. I live here. 
And this is how I want it to be because this is the kind of country I can live with. Chapter 36. Now the chief fathers of the children of the uh, the chief fathers of the families of the children uh, of Gilead, the son of Machir, the son of Manasseh, of the families of the sons of Joseph, came near and they spoke before Moses and before the leaders and the chief fathers of the children of Israel. So we've got a pretty big powwow going on here. A lot of powerful people. They got a request here as they approached Moses and the leadership. And they said, The Lord commanded my Lord Moses to give the land as an inheritance by lot to the children of Israel. And my Lord was commanded by the Lord to give the inheritance of our brother Zeholophad to his daughters. And we remember uh, earlier in, in chapter 36 of the book of Numbers where the daughters, they were several daughters of a father. He had no sons. They're going into the promised land and they said, uh, our father's name is going to be lost. No land's going to be allocated to us for the sole reason that we are daughters and not sons. It, could you approach God related to this issue? And God came back to Moses and said, it's, it's a, it, this is a, a, a fair request that they're making here, and so land is to be allocated uh, to daughters as well as, as sons. They have a place uh, to have own land in, in, the, in Israel. Now a complication comes up. Because in that culture, when a man married a woman, what belongs to the woman, I assume it's the case today, but it's quite a legal world we live in, but what belonged to the woman now belongs to the man, so the head of the household. And so the danger was, is now you've got all these guys who, he may, here's a guy that may live over in another tribe, and he looks over into the tribe, uh, the, uh, a portion of land that's held by another tribe, and he looks, and here's a stream that's got great trout fishing. Men are carnal, I'm telling you, it's just sad. It's, uh, but he looks and says, that's a great creek, I'd like to have a river like that, you can do some trout fishing and the whole thing on it. And he said, who owns it? He said, well, this woman owns it over here. He goes, well, I wouldn't marry her normally. That's a, that's a pretty nice stream. I think, put the two together, and I think we've got something I could live with for 40 years. It's carnal, I know it, but God's got to look out for this stuff. And so what would happen then is the potential for him now, he'd marry her, and then this land, pass, after the time of, of the, the Jubilee, that land would now belong to this man from another tribe. And this isn't something that's foreign to human history. I mean, those of you who read European history, I mean, you've got, you got German princesses marrying English kings and French this and Swiss this and Italian this and no concern at all for who likes who or is attracted to anyone like that. They got land, they got something we want, we're going to marry you off into that so we can have a stake in that. God says, I don't want that kind of stuff going on. I don't want a transfer of wealth and land and power and all based on these kind of things. I want this land to remain within the families. So there's no problem with the guys marrying, but the women, it's a very small segment of the population that was in this kind of a place, but, he, God's, but, but it was a problem and a specific one, and God's going to give a specific solution to it. And, and here it is. Enough of the introductions. Come on, Kyle, let's move on this thing. Where are we again? So, okay, here we go. All right, so, verse 3. 
Now, if they are married to any of the sons of other tribes of the children of Israel, then their inheritance will be taken from the inheritance of our fathers. We're going to have a land swap going on here with this marrying stuff. And it will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry, and so it will be taken from the lot of our inheritance. It's going to look like a jigsaw puzzle when this is said and done. And when the jubilee of the children of Israel comes, then their inheritance will be added to the inheritance of the tribe into which they marry. And so their inheritance will be taken away from the inheritance of the tribe of our fathers. So it's a real problem. It's a complication. Then Moses commanded the children of Israel according to the word of the Lord. So he seeks the Lord, and here's what the Lord comes back with. What the tribe of the sons of uh, Joseph speaks is right. And this is what the Lord commands concerning the daughters of Zeholophat, saying, Let them marry whom they think best, but they may marry only within the family of their father's tribe. Marry within that tribe of Israel. And so the inheritance of the children of Israel shall not change hands from tribe to tribe, for every one of the children of Israel shall keep the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every, fa- every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the children of Israel shall be the, one, uh, be the wife of one of the family of her father's tribe, so that the children of Israel may, each may possess the inheritance of his fathers. Thus no inheritance shall change hands from one tribe to another, but every tribe of the children of Israel shall keep its own inheritance. You just had to marry within the tribe and everything got taken care of. And just as the Lord commanded Moses, so did the daughters of Zaholophat. For uh, Mela, Terza, Hagla, Milcah, and Noah, the daughters of Zaholophat, were married to the sons of their father's brothers, and they were married into the families of the children of Manasseh, the the son of Joseph, and their inheritance remained in the tribe of their father's family. These are the commandments and the judgments which the Lord commanded the children of Israel by the hand of Moses in the plains of Moab, by the Jordan, across from Jericho. And so thus we finish the book of Numbers, and we'll pick up the book of Deuteronomy, Lord willing, next week.